0: basketball doesn't mean I raise your kid.
1: Hello, and welcome back to Dear Adam Silver. My name is Abigail Smithson, and as always, I am your host, and I just want to start off by saying... Uh, that I hope you're all doing well and are safe and your families and friends are too. This is such a strange time and um, I just hope that we're all taking care of ourselves as much as we can uh, and taking care of the people that we love uh, as much as we can as well. I mean, it's a strange strange situation for, for sort of in relationship to the, the people that you know, are, are, we're closest to. So just wanting to put that out there to start this off. Um, my guest today is Glauco Adorno, uh, Glauco has been a, uh, guest on the podcast before. We met when we were both graduate students at LSU and we completed a residency together just this past fall in, uh, 2019 in Lithuania. Um, so Glauco is a dear friend and he is an art historian and a curator based in Brazil. Um, Glock was on the pod today to discuss Citizen, an American Lyric, a book of poetry and prose by poet Claudia Rankine. This book is an incredible piece of art, nonfiction, and poems all brought together to create, as described by NPR, a personal meditation on race in America. Claudia Rankine was born in Kingston, Jamaica in 1963. She's currently the Frederick Eisenman Professor of Poetry at Yale University, She has received numerous awards, fellowships, and grants for her work, and Citizens specifically received many book awards, including the National Book Critics Circle Award in Poetry, the Los Angeles Times Book Prize in Poetry, and the NAACP Image Award for Outstanding Literary Work in Poetry. Her work is so important, and I'm really glad that Glauco and I had the chance to discuss it together. We've been wanting to have this podcast for a year and a half now where we got a chance to, to look at Rankin's work. And, um, yeah, it was just a wonderful opportunity. The the book is deals with a lot of very difficult subjects um, as, you know, that's what makes it a very important piece um, and the way that Rankin handles these subjects of race um, and uniquely race in America, what that means uh, and how it um, impacts um her and 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 the people that she's interacted with. Uh, it's just it's it's just a really wonderful, uh, important uh, body of work. I will include links in the show notes to lectures of Rankin. so Glauco and I lec- uh, reference some lectures that we heard of hers that is just extra information and can give you more uh, context for for what we're talking about. Um, She has such a beautiful voice, and it's really important to hear her read her own words, I think, so I really recommend that, uh, and that will be included in in the videos I post. Um, And if you are interested in reading Citizen or another book by Rankin, um, make sure you order it from a local bookseller. I think it's a good time right now to be supporting our local bookstores and to be reading, so to just, you know, make the most of this this time and and um, if you want to explore it more, just um, just yeah, think about where you're where you're buying your book from. Thank you as always for listening and uh, please subscribe if you can share the podcast, uh, rate and review also. okay, I hope you guys all stay well. So please tell me,, um, I think as a start to this conversation, as pretty much a start to any conversation that I'm having. Right now, whether it's being recorded or not, I think it's really I really want to ask you how you're doing, what's going on in the place where you live, like literally, you know, at your home and then also, um, you know, in Rio, what's happening in Rio as far as the the outbreak of COVID-19 goes. And then, of course, within Brazil.
0: Yeah, um, I uh, everything is fine. First of all, like I'm lucky that I have a place to live, and uh, I I am able to work from home as I can. Um, everything is fine with my family. Thank God, uh, we're all quarantining in different places. Um, Rio is where I live and uh, it's been a bit um, hit and miss, I think. I feel like in general, my, my experience and my impression is that a lot of people don't take quarantine as seriously as they do in other parts of the world. So I live very close to the beach and I still see a lot of people walking around and, you know, um, I guess everybody needs some exercise once in a while, but um, it, it, it you know depending on where you go, you really sort of like is this is the quarantine still happening? Because there's a lot of people like I think I think people are in general the mood is way less um, like diligent about it, and then then I see in other countries, uh, but that's my personal experience here. Um, all the stores are closed, but. Brazil has a bunch of uh, delivery apps that are making probably a lot of money. I am getting everything delivered. I'm getting everything delivered. And you can like, you can chat on WhatsApp to like the supermarket, which is the big supermarket, like very close to my house. And you can say like, Hey, can you bring me like two cans of beans for, you know things of milk and like some bread and stuff like that, and they will just bring it. And you, you know, you they bring a little machine and you pay when the guy brings. So it's, I mean, it's it's a system that was in place before that, but it has been working really well if you if you want to uh, practice social distancing. They even leave it uh, at the door, and you can you know can pay over the internet and stuff like that if you want. Um, yeah, Brazil like politically is being a bit challenging with the president like not being very happy with uh, social distancing. He is worried about the economy. I mean, we all do but um, we all are, I mean but it's been a bit difficult with um, the lack of um, sort of like a united front in the government because some people think this, people think that and now like there is a a lot of strife with different strategies that the president wants to you know enact versus what the government governors of each state inside Brazil are doing so a lot of the governors are pro quarantine and social isolation and the and the president is pretty much one of the only kind of world leaders who is saying like we should go back we should all go back to work you know which is very embarrassing in my opinion um so it's it's worrying he yesterday i think he fired his Health minister, which is kind of like the top health position in in the country, and he put someone else in there, and that was that's very contagious because they were they were having a lot of issues because the minister was the previous minister was like the one who was pro quarantine and saying everybody should, should stay home. And they they would be, like, bickering and fighting on the on TV all the time on and on Twitter. And then now the president fired this guy, put someone else in there, and we don't know if, like, we will have to open everything and go back to work in the middle of the pandemic, like, a couple of weeks from now or next week or something. <laughs> so that's a bit unnerving. But other than that, I am personally fine, and I feel like the, the country is doing a good job overall with, you know, like following the directives from the major organizations and, and et cetera.
1: Yeah. Well, I can really relate to you on being embarrassed by your, president of course we've spoken about this several times before um and yes it seems like there is a push in the united states as well to to reopen things um that being said i think it's um it's clear that the the governors here at least are are the ones that like quote-unquote can reopen uh things even though that that seems unrealistic right now just because how can you um I think a part of reopening is is showing people that things are safe for them to yeah. be working and safe for them to be outside of their home and sort of doing things in a more normal way. And if we can't explain how things are safer now, then yeah. how can – so? I just don't see how it can be – yeah, I guess it's just – I mean, I've seen a lot of different sort of – Explanations of this, but um, Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, said it's not an on-off switch; it's a dimmer. <laughs> so <laughs> things are going to get brighter, darker, uh, in a more um, subtle way. Then it's not like you flip a yeah. switch and everything can be reopened. It's it's there's these small adjustments that are made in order to allow. A little bit of it to be re- reopened and then maybe a little bit of it has to be. I mean, there has to be adjustments made as things go forward. So, yeah, at least that's how it is here. With with it being like the governors are going to be the ones that end up um, making those decisions. And I, as I understand that, that's what's that's what's legal. Like the governors are the ones that, that the president does not have the right to tell um, people in X state that they have to go back to work. Um, yeah yeah so that yeah, i'm not sure how how that works in brazil
0: i think it's a similar thing yeah um i think there was some kind of a uh, motion that the president here tried to do with the supreme court or something like that to like test how much power he would have to like force governors to obey him he's still going on this idea of like very similar to trump he's going on this idea of like am the authority kind of thing, so you have to obey me. And he's very angry at people who are just not following line. But apparently, as I understand, the the Supreme Court here in Brazil, which is actually quite liberal um, for now, um, uh, has since... Announced that and said it's up to each governor, and it, it's not it's not up to the president to say like that the people of Rio need to leave their homes and open their businesses. It's up to the government. So yeah, so there is still like this kind of um, struggle between governors and and uh, and the president, but I, I'm not really sure how that's going to be resolved.
1: Which is so interesting because states' rights and states being able to make decisions for themselves is like such a conservative or has been a conservative (laughs) issue of like wanting the states to have more power than the federal government. and. At this point I'm pretty thankful that that's, <laughs> that's the case even though my not for funny. my governor like my governors um... is it,
0: it is funny a lot of these governors here in Brazil are quite conservative and they were allies of the president for a long time and then when this issue came up they were the, like the governor of Rio was one of the first people to to install like to put in place the quarantine and to close schools and stuff like that And now, only now that has been like, well, it's, it's funny because like, this is, this is not quite polarized, you know, like you can't really, you can't really put this into like a a Democrat versus Republican or like a left-wing versus right-wing rhetoric. A lot of people on the, a lot of people that want the economy to go back, you know, happen to be on the right, but there's a lot of people on the right who are not like that. So you know, this is one of the main interesting things about this shindig (laughs) because it's, it's kind of, it's sort of like depolarizing the discourse that was polarized about everything. So now you have people in different, you know, like like people of the same kind of quote unquote, like uh, political leanings, you know, having different opinions about it. Um, So it's, it's very interesting. You know, it's very interesting. One thing that I have to mention about Rio obviously is that a lot of the, a lot of the a big part of the population of Rio lives in favelas and that, you know, there is a lot of concern about underreporting reporting and uh, sanitary conditions that um, people that live in favelas live. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So the favelas are com- like, they're, they're often called communities here. They are, um, I think the word in English that you would, Used to describe them as a slum, uh, so there are pockets of population that lived lives in um, live in, in in areas that are of difficult uh, uh, access. So a lot of them here in Rio live like up the mountain, um, and they are historically built um, to house people who were like kicked off the the the. Uh, like poor housing in the city center because the in the 1940s and the 1920s for, during the between the 1920s and the 1940s the government of Rio wanted to like clean the city. so they kicked people out and this community started because these people are service workers. So they are your maids, they are your or your gatekeepers, they are your delivery people. So they still need to live close to where all the rich people live. And uh, Rio has a very sort of um, interesting and, and unique um, landscape because of that because from the most expensive uh, neighborhoods of Rio, you can see the favelas, which are kind of these the sprawls of of uh, small houses kind of like growing up the mountains where, you know, the no one wants to live up the mountain because it's you know it's it's difficult access you know the it's not there's not a lot of space and stuff like that so the, the way it developed here is very unique in the sense that you have the big you know old fashioned um skyscrapers with like the huge apartments and then from the window you can see the, these these sprawls of 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 small houses where these very poor people live often they are there is not a lot of uh, sanitation, so there is um, difficult access to water and sewer sewerage services. Um, it's often a lot of people living in the same house, um, so you have like a two-bedroom house with you know for a, a a large family. And also often a lot of these favelas are controlled by uh, drug trafficking gangs, and so they operate as a second sort of. Uh, but power there so like yeah normally the 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 leader of the gang will leave it will live at the top of the at the top of the mountain and they they are you know often capable to like enact laws and stuff like that so in the sense that they they will force businesses to close when it's a day of mourning because someone of the gang died or um, they will uh, bribe, poli- bribe policemen to not go at certain places and they you know, so everything that happens in these favelas um, often is um, controlled by these gangs. It's kind of like a mafia because it's very organized crime, and they are the people who basically um, deal with the with drugs in in the city. And so it's this very unique sort of uh, contrast of the, the the wealthiest neighborhoods are often surrounded by by these these houses that like sort of crawl, crawl up the mountains. Um, the main uh, worry about it is that uh, the, these people, although they, we have, uh, um, thank God, we have a uh, um, uh, nationalized health service here with, which are doing amazing by the way. Uh, so these people do have access to healthcare, um, but if people still have issues with isolation so a lot of people live you know if you have a large family in a house that only has one room it's impossible to isolate and so um there's a lot of worry about um this the potential spread that an outbreak could have in a community like that um one one interesting thing that i didn't mention when i was talking about the drug uh, uh, drug trafficking like drug traffic drug traffic uh, gang members are now um they had their own quarantine rules so they came up with quarantine before like a few i mean in and parallel with the government so it's kind of it's really bizarre how it works like that because they so basically they said that there is a curfew that no uh, person in the favela could be out uh, during uh, after 8 p.m in the favela and they would enforce it with violence And so these people live in a sort of this alternate universe, you know, like there's not alternate universes right there. I can see it from my window, you know, like it's but it's it's this it's crazy to me that like there is this other set of laws within eyeshot, you know, and so um, and and there is a lot of um, struggle, but also a lot of like normality inbuilt into it in the sense that um, people who live here and grew up here just think this is normal, you know. Um, so it's
1: it's there normal is a few for the and- uh, the favelas to have their own sort of structure systems and structures is that right
0: exactly exactly and that's the it's the sort of like you know the impression that i have is this parallel universe that you don't talk about you know like that is right there but you don't talk about i mean that's maybe a a bit of a a social commentary on on the city of rio (laughs) as since i'm not from here and i've been living here for a year Um, but i find it's funny and sort of like kind of fascinating but also sort of terrifying how people who live in a an, an, an middle-class neighborhood in Rio will never set foot in a favela, you know? Like, they don't know how it looks like. They don't know um, who lives there. It's just like this 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 sort of, like, prohibited zone that just happens to be right there next, you know, like a, a couple of blocks from you. There's a lot of violence and there's a lot of crime associated with um, favela. so, like, you know, the, the housing market for example like whenever that, you, your apartment if your apartment is close to a favela or if you can see your apartment out of your window you can see a favela like that can bring the, the value of the the house down Um, you know because there's a lot of people who come down from the favelas you know like the, the crime rates are like concentrated in the favelas and stuff like that so that, you know the, a lot of the association with the idea that you don't want to be close to one you don't want to be near one Um, and only recently I feel that like only recently, I want to say like in the, in the last like 10, 20 years, maybe 15 years, the idea that like is acceptable for you to go there or is acceptable for you to, you know, sort of kind of make this part of your, make this, this, this place a part of your, part of your, part of the city. Um, and so that's that's very that's very interesting to me. I don't know much about it. Uh, I think that's the, the thing that I can say. Like, I don't know much about it. I feel like I've, I kind of feel bad that I've never been to one. But at the same time, I don't want to, like, romanticize it and just, like, you know, create a, a reason to go. Um, I don't know anyone who lives in a favela, um, and I wish I did. Um But uh, yeah, maybe I need to work some more, you know, to, to be able to make meaningful connections with, with this, these communities, which are like right here. And also obviously a lot of people who live in the Sovelas are black and, you know, there is a, definitely there is a racial component to it. So, um, yes, it's, it's a, it's a very complex, difficult uh, conversation that I, I honestly don't know much about because it's difficult to find. Um it's not difficult to find. Like I have been, I think I have been remiss into like going into this um this this complex feature of the city that I live in and uh understanding it more and maybe experiencing more. There are some restaurants that you can go like there is a restaurant at top of Vigao which is this big uh, favela close to the beach here, and you can go there, and you can you can pay a guy to like uh, it, it. It you can only do like Ubers don't go there because the uh, drug trafficking, the the gang traffic gangs don't like Ubers there, so they just don't go. But once you're in there, you can pay for a moto taxi. So you just pay for a guy with a with a motorcycle, and you go on the on the back, and they, he, he basically drives you. All the way up and there is like there's like a restaurant that you can go there up and there is like a couple of hikes that you can do up there and so you know there are there are opportunities um to like make that part of your experience
1: um and are favelas are the actual structures in in the favela colorful
0: um there are some favelas that have painted um, the houses uh recently i think there was a couple of art projects that sort of like try to make them um more colorful or uh, or more interesting to look at um, a lot of the the vast majority of the houses i think from from what I, my experience are are bricks without um um any Covering so most of the favelas are brick-colored, like small brick houses with the brick the, with the brick exposed. Um, there's a lot of uh, the each house will have like a little water tank on top, and these the water tanks are blue, and so you have this very interesting sort of color combination that is natural from the materials that are used. Um, but I don't think there is a concerted like a, a community effort to. Um, Not not all favelas have a community effort to like paint the houses and coordinate colors and stuff like. Mm -hmm. It is it's really it is really interesting. Sorry, sorry. I I was just gonna say like it's really interesting because um, one of the things that is hard again for me to I mean uh, maybe I'm complaining (laughs) about something that I don't know about and I apologize if I am, but. I find it quite beautiful. Like I find it quite like a feat of engineering to like build a city up the mountain. You know, like it's it's really the Hostinia, which is the one that is across the mountains from where I am right now. Um, So you have to go like under. Well, you have to go around and then look back towards where I am to see. It's the it's one of the biggest in Rio. I think if not the biggest in Rio. And it's just basically at night, it's like a wall of light because all of these houses have lights, and it's basically this like the mountain is all lit up with these like street lights and how and the houses and the you know, like lights and the houses. And I find it personally quite beautiful, even though I've never, I've never been there. And I know that it's really difficult, and I shouldn't uh, romanticize something I don't know, right? But um, I find that. Uh, as a Brazilian, I was taught the favelas were these bad place that you know no one wants to live there. So it was offensive to call someone, you know, to tell someone. It was a way to offend someone to say you you're from a favela. And nowadays we have many uh, artists and politicians and and um, and uh, people in the public eye who were born in favelas and have now like you know and now advocate for them. So I think it's really important to think that it's a life you know it's a it's a real place it's not just this parallel universe as, as sometimes living in the city makes you feel like you know it's it's there, there's people living there there's a lot of people living there and they have a regular life and um it's it's quite um yeah it's a quite a co- quite a complex way to like understand urban development and 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 living arrangements but um also it's it's just a place you know so um you know and, yeah Yeah, <laughs> no, I, mean, I, I think
1: that that one of the reasons i asked if if the buildings there were painted different colors is because i think i've seen pictures before of um maybe a favela or a part of a favela yeah. that that has like all these colorful buildings and I think that that really plays into what you were talking about kind of romanticizing a place that we're not I mean and of course you're much more familiar than I am but that I don't know and I'm like oh look at this how that you know this is like celebratory in some way with these colors yeah. and things like that and um, yeah. of course that's not reality or the reality of, of what it might be like to to live there and I th- I think that it, it's okay to, you know, have a reaction to a photograph or a a view or something like that, as long as you're able to like properly contextualize it and know that, exactly. uh, and put yeah, it in, in exactly. within the um, development and and the history of of how this place came to be. And of course, uh, as you're describing the favelas, it's it's there's comparable situations um, in so many places across the world and I'm I'm thinking of a documentary I saw about it's actually a Real Sports uh, on HBO with Brian Gumble. Shout out to Brian Gumble and Real mm-hmm. Sports because they do a lot <laughs> of amazing investigative work about yeah. uh, social issues with in regards to sports. And it was about how um, when Rio was preparing for the twenty I think it was the twenty fourteen World Cup. Is that right? Yes,
0: 2014 World Cup, 2016 Olympics.
1: Okay, so yeah, so that a lot of people were displaced because of needing to build these new structures to accommodate the Olympians, the Olympic Games, like all that. So and that and that people who lived in favelas uh, and because the communities there are are uh, marginalized um, systematically and poor, that they were the some of the first to be displaced or pushed out, um, or at least thought to Absolutely. not have have a strong standing for why they should get to stay where where they live. Um, yeah. that, so just thinking about that in relationship to the then the images I've seen of the, some colorful buildings or just you know this like the the reality um, and how how the communities that live there have been treated. And this is just such a rudimentary understanding, but I it does those have connections for me in my head.
0: Oh, for sure. I think one of the connections that is very interesting is this idea of visibility versus invisibility. That is such part of part of uh, um, what we've been discussing, and like what you know, like what what we've been reading about, and Clatter and Keen's work. And and uh, I feel like the, a lot of it for me is this idea that you know, especially if you're here, uh, where I am, which is a upper class neighborhood in Rio. Um, you're supposed to not see it, like it's it's supposed to be invisible, even though it's right there. Like this is this is one of like all a lot of the geographical features of Rio, which are these giant mountains that are right in the middle of the city. I mean, giant, not Rockies, but not like, Everest. You know, uh, Pretty, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But but like you know, they are mounts that are like sort of they basically define the the geography of the city, and obviously we have. Um, uh christ the redeemer which is in one of those mountains and w- which is the biggest one but it's very steep so you can't build houses there but basically all the, all the mountains all the all the little mounts that are um that have slopes gentle enough for anyone to build are built on and but at the same time we're supposed to not look at it you know you're supposed to pretend that they are not there i feel like there's a lot of pretending on Mm-hmm. And uh, we're not supposed to go there. We're not supposed to count them. Like in the official, the first official uh, um, quarantine. i uh, sorry, in the first official coronavirus uh, counts, uh, the the city hall had a breakdown by neighborhood. And I was very distraught to not see any of the favelas in the in the count or, or on the list of neighborhoods. And that was since retracted when they had the first. Counted case in Vichigao, which is one of the favelas very close to where I am. um But, you know, it was this thing for a minute. I was there, wait, are they not counting them? <laughs> like, are they not like putting them in the official count? Because sure. it's thousands of, it's hundreds of thousands of people who live here, you know? And so, yeah, there's this thing, another case as well from um the main airport. That the, the the international airport that serves Rio is very far away from the city center, and it's far north from like the city center and from the the south zone where all the affluent people live. So to, have to go from the international airport to the city center, you have to drive through a highway that goes straight to one favela. Well, many favelas because it's it's called like it's like it's called a complex right like a complex which is like a group of favelas um and so this highway um i remember the first time i came to rio this highway was just this thing and you just drive through it and you see all the houses and it's fine um just before the olympics they, they put these barriers mm-hmm. um and they claimed that the barriers were put there for sound proofing so the favela so the so the favela people who live in the favela wouldn't have to deal with the sound. So like, similar to barriers that you see in the United States sometimes when a, when an interstate goes very close to a to like a residential area. Um, but some of the parts of it were transparent when they there was like were there something nice like a school or something. But all of it was opaque, and a lot of the you know the top was what well, are you trying to hide the favelas from people you know from international people who land here and go to Rio and are supposed to see this beautiful, amazing place, you know. Um, so it's, 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 it, there's a lot, a lot of it has to do with invisibility versus visibility.
1: This is a good segue into our conversation today, which I feel like yeah. we've already had a, a full conversation and now we're having a second For conversation. Sure. um Yeah. But, and of course, uh, this conversation about Claudia Rankin's uh, book, Citizen, An American Lyric, that we're going to have. We've been talking about having it, I think, since um, the fall of 2018, when we recorded our first podcast together and got really sidetracked. Um, So, (laughs) yeah, this this has been a while um, in the making, and I mean... Claudia Rankin is an uh, writer that I was introduced to in graduate school, whose whose work really influenced how I chose to write my thesis paper. I think that the way she writes and the way that she reads her writing I mean she's just a very um, she's a very powerful way of of bringing you into situations that you might not normally be in, um, and, or might not normally notice. I think that the noticing is going back to what you were talking about, about visibility versus invisibility. Um, and she's just a really, uh, an excellent writer. And this is, this book Citizen is, uh, that was published in 2014. It's a, it's a bit of a hybrid work that bounces back and forth between, um, sort of anecdotal, sort of evidence, stories, um, prose, and some poetry, of course. And then she includes images as well. And the images, of course, are not... They're not explanatory or self-explanatory. They really make you think. So she has collaborated with artists who actually – one of the images in here, like an artist made a piece for her that they then photographed and, and included. She she mm-hmm. uses work that her husband has made who's a photographer. She uses, you know, AP images and things like that. And she just kind of juxtaposes her own writing um, against the, these different images in order to expand your understanding about how, essentially, how racism functions in our country in many different ways. Um, and I think when we're going through a period of time, and, I mean, you were just talking about with favel- the favelas where there's all this concern about what happens if there's an outbreak, a COVID-19 outbreak, in the favelas, how dangerous that would be, and that also we're seeing in the United States that poor communities are being hit harder by COVID-19. And that um, years of systematic racism as far as environmental racism and um, just decisions that are made to, you know, it's like, I'm thinking about Baton Rouge where you and I met where uh, the oil refineries are built in the, uh, the, the part of town that has less money and people yeah. who who live near those oil refineries are breathing an air that isn't as healthy as the people who have more money that live in the other part of the Baton Rouge. It actually the air around the refinery smells I mean it smells bad. Um but it has yeah. there's just like, you know, sort of burning plastic smell in that part of the um in that part of town so that that's like one example of many ways that um, poor communities might be more uh, vulnerable health-wise, have pre-existing conditions that other other groups don't have because they've already been exposed to these sort of toxins or, or um, just things in the air and have experienced health issues previously that make them more vulnerable to COVID-19. Um, so it feels really important to... Notice the invisible right now and notice the small things that add up to more like that, you know, there's this whole thing going around. We're all in this together, you know, with the pandemic. We're all staying home, blah, blah, blah. It's not it's it's sweeping over the fact that there's there is a huge disparity in how people are experiencing this, how people who are in prison are experiencing this versus people who aren't in prison, how people who you know, are in an apartment versus a house. I mean, these are just sort of like physical location differences versus people who have um, been a part of a community or in a community that has, that, you know, like lives near something like an oil refinery or something like that. So um, it's just, it's really important to mark these, uh, injustices and this sort of non-level playing field. We're not all in this together because we're having really different experiences to to, to notice it. And I think that's what Claudia Rankin's book does so well in in observing um, racism in both obvious and subtle ways. And I also really feel the need to say that um, this is the first time I've ever talked about a book in-depth on the podcast without the author being there, uh, being here. And I mean, I I really want to talk about this with you, but I also just want to acknowledge that the, the person who wrote this can't speak for themselves um, about what we're saying about the book. And just to encourage... Yeah anyone who's listening who's interested to also look up what Claudia Rankin says about this book on YouTube because she you know there's all these different lectures of hers that you can find on YouTube and you know the the things that she says about her writing and the ideas about her writing I think are best shared through her but of course we have had the privilege of getting to read this book and I think it's important that we like sort of carry on her what she's left us with um so that's why i think there's value in in us talking about it
0: absolutely yeah i yeah. feel like uh the, the, it's also obviously very important to tell to say that you know she's not here um but i feel like the book itself is so um um it's it it, it gives such a it, it 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 talks about such a personal um Experience of the issue, that I find it sort of makes makes us uh, more, um, it, you know, the affinity is, is there with the idea of like talking about what your perception is and, and, and understanding that um, you know the the, the the issue is the issue of racism is experienced in this in this small form as well. So I think it's really important to to sort of kind of take that example and understand, like, how does that affect me? How do I participate in it? You know, like as a person, as a, as a human, um, how do I, you know, how, how am I a victim to it sometimes? How I, how do I perpetrate this sometimes? And uh, well, in one um, interview that she um, did, which I watched recently, she 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 talked about something like uh, the idea of um, that, race is always talked about in terms of scandal,
1: right? Like when something really
0: terrible happens.
1: Rodney King, uh, I mean, other such things as as the sort of the, the visual of seeing Rodney King beaten.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, 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 and all of the, all of the terrible examples we have of, of violence against um, black people, um, are supposed to like give us this this outrage and this idea, but like of 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 this this energy to fight it, right? Like, but at the same time, she 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 talks about this idea of having um starting at home, you know, quote unquote, like, you know, sort of, you know, just in a way that you 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 teach a child to do something at home first and then they go into the world and 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 do that. Um so the idea of like how can we understand I don't, you know, to to be fair, yeah. How can we understand, you know, these small racism, like the, the racism that is, that is in built in these small interactions and the small ways? To be fair, I don't think she wants to be like didactic, you know. Like I don't think she wants to teach people how to behave better. I don't think that's like the the, the point of the book. But um, I find that this is a very useful way to think about it in the sense of like, how am I, you know, in this in this in this systemic thing like where where do I figure
1: yeah t- sort of reminding us that the smaller interactions add up rather than it's it is the 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 big events that that you know w- were once viewed on everyone's tv set now it's on like computers and phones and all of that but yeah that those we need to address those as well, but it's like the day-to-day small interactions that you have where you say something that might be um, uh, off-putting or inconsiderate based around someone's race that's not overt, but it's just strange, or, or why are you saying that, or why are you looking at me like that, or whatever it is. And so she, yeah. at the beginning of this book, she just lists all of these things. Um, Experiences and she's listing it. Um, I mean, she's using, she chooses to use you often. So you go through this. This is the experience that yeah. you had. But after listening to some of her, how she describes writing this book, these are stories that she's also heard from friends that she's just retelling with this Good. one voice of when you were, you know, sitting in your seat on the airplane or you were um, in the parking lot, at the grocery store. This is how you were treated that made based around <laughs> your race. Um, yeah, so she's right. she's kind of taken personal experiences of her own in combination with people that she's talked to and collected these stories and then sort of represented them in a way that it makes the f- feel like the reader is getting like a serious window into into that moment.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think it I think it's a very clever way to essentially um understand um use empathy to understand the um, the idea the, the the emotional toll that racism has on on a person right in and, and a group of people and how that doesn't go away just simply like that right so I feel like people you know we we, we talk a lot about white privilege and we talk a lot about um you know uh, you, terms like these, and I feel like this is kind of the idea that she tries to like to to, to pinpoint as well. That this idea of like being able to, when you're not um, a person of color, being able to say some things or think some things or act in a certain ways, that uh, essentially will will not bring you any consequences and so because there's no consequences you keep, you carry on your day you don't really think about it um but the person impacted by that um you know just just you know was deeply offended or or you know like that rained day or something like that but uh, also not not necessarily like um i don't think it's all also- so I think I think sometimes when you talk about racism we talk about in in terms of like feelings in the sense of like oh you shouldn't say that because it hurts someone's feelings and I think that's a very poor way to describe it I don't think it's about that at all I think it's a more much more about like um, uh, giving power to the system you know like sort of reaff- reaffirmating the system building the system making you know using words and and and, and taking actions that make this thing, stay, you know, when we all want it to go away. Like we all want it to go away. Yes, bar some people. Right. So, um,
1: yeah. <laughs> yes. And I think it's the same. It's sort of the, the noticing it is what could lead to it being addressed in a, in a larger way as a system rather than in an individual. I think that's the other thing that, I keep coming back to over and over again with this issue of COVID-19 is like, who do we get to blame? And I mean, I think to a certain yeah. extent, there are individuals. I, I mean, I don't I think that if we had a more competent uh, president who was concerned with um, science and concerned with experts in their field and, you know, didn't claim to be yeah. to know all everything himself, that we would be in better position but at the same time, the fact that people are really concerned about healthcare right now um, and paying for, for I mean which is an ongoing issue before COVID nineteen, but that this is really like laid bare like who has who has security and who doesn't and all this stuff and and financial issues yeah. and things like that. It's like there's so many systematic issues that like one yeah. individual. It, it's not, it can't be one individual because of how much systematic issue, how many systematic issues there are, already sort of Absolutely. firmly rooted in how we, how we've developed our, our society. So yeah. it's a really tricky thing, and I think that that also um, just speaks to um, the the vastness <laughs> of. Racism. I'm not sure if that's the right word. The 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 size, the scale of how how white supremacy exists and how it it is the person that uses the racial slur. But it's also the person that um, does things more subtly without realizing that racism is informing their actions or, you know, says something about affirmative action or complaints about this or, you know, things that are really off used in an offhanded way so that it's it's all of the things kind of piled on top of each other. And that's what I think that when we were texting earlier about um, the book and you were like, this book is so heavy. And I think that's because (laughs) she layers. She continues to layer all these different ways in which – um, racism plays out until you feel like, oh, I mean, I think she gives you a place to start, like you were saying, as far as being more aware. She's t- she's encouraging you to start with yourself, not to go out and tell other people not to be racist, but to think about how you move through the world. Um, exactly.
0: I feel like this yeah. is... Sorry.
1: Oh, on. I was just going to say that, uh, yeah, there's just this... It's this heaviness. There's just one sort of situation listed after another and one sort of connection she makes from what seems like a benign comment is 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 laced with so much, uh, like, centuries of um, racism. I, I feel like we're going to say the word yeah, racism, sure. white privilege, white supremacy a lot because it's important to say those words because that's what this is about.
0: Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. I, I, I think like w- one of the things that, that caught me that she, she writes in a part of the book is this, this idea of, like that a friend of hers says that there is like always a strife between the self self and the historic self in that sense of like, you know, you have this, you know, uh, personal interaction with someone and, you know, that doesn't mean much, maybe if you say something, but then there is this, like, all of this history that is behind that interaction, and, you know. Yes. There's the sort of this difference. And I think one of the genius things that she does is is is, is trying to give you a glimpse of um, the two very important factors, right? Like, with the first factor is um, the historic systemic racism. Like, the idea that, like, you don't, you, you cannot focus on individual acts of um like it's not about pointing at that person's actions and say that's racist right like that's not the issue here the issue is much more um broad and historic and systematic and and sort of baked in the fabric of what the united states is and and in and, in different ways the fabric of what the world is um on the other hand you know like the idea that maybe looking at yourself and having this like this courage to be uh self-critical and understand that the the ways that you see and say things um uh have an impact on how this goes forward um and understanding that i feel like you know she she says she, she talks a little bit when she was talking about the book in an interview she was talking about like you know just this idea of saying what she feels like she's not trying to communicate that to anyone. And I find that just this idea of, of expressing that expressing this, this, this frustration, this anger, this, you know, feelings of rejection, this, this, Endless, sort of like this tired. Like the book is heavy, as you say, because of the layers, and the layers just make you tired. You know, like and and that's kind of the feeling I feel. Like it's a woman who's tired of this shit. Yeah, yeah, and uh tired. And uh, and you know, I feel like that's what I feel with a lot of of you know of my experiences with racism and my in uh, experiences of other people of color with racism, but also you know, and any minority who is. You know, uh, trying to just live a life, you know, and 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 constantly get like a, a sort of reminded, right? Like by a comment or by something like you're not me, like you're not normal, right? Like I feel like this is one of the most, um, uh, if I can talk about my experience,
1: yes, please, being gay and
0: and and being black, you know, like a, not, I don't can't think of a. One example right now, but like the thing that hurts, one of the most annoying things is the when someone makes a comment or makes a joke uh, in which it's implied, but you're not like me. Right? Like, oh, you when someone says like, oh, you guys do this a lot or oh, you, you know, something like that. Like some people really feel this need, however social you accept it, to just put this barrier between you and that person. Um, and, and I find that I find that quite um, unnerving because like when, you're, when when you're having a conversation with someone, like when I'm having a conversation with someone, the first thing I try to do is find things in common, right? Like find something that we can talk about that we both know about or something that we both like. like you know and the idea that someone would start by drawing this line and saying like, well, we're different. Uh, it's really difficult for me to understand. Um, how and why that works. Uh, and I find that the, the book is a really good example of people like who casually do this and and do things like this and worse. Um, and because there is a need to, to to exercise that, to like you know, reinforce that idea that you're, you know, I'm not like you. Um here, here I, I commonly hear very often um, when people talk about people who live in favelas, um, they will say they, right? But in that way, <laughs> like, oh, because they are, you know, like this and they live a really tough life and they and stuff like that. And I, I really started thinking about this idea of the they, right? And how do you like, what exactly is the separation, you know, like, we both live, like, I'm, I'm, like, we all here as a group live in the south part of the city, uh, which is bizarrely separated, you know, into affluent neighborhoods and, and very poor, uh, communities. And this idea that, like, we're supposed to be a different day, like a different other, um, is, is, it feels very artificial to me. So, you know, I find that people are t- often trying to, um, reinforce the otherness in order to, like, you know, say, no, oh, no, I'm not like them. I'm here. They are there. Uh, whereas a person who doesn't know or a person who is uh, alien to the situation might consider everybody to be the, you know, like one, one group, you know? So, um, it's very, it's very interesting how these, these divisions are so somewhat arbitrary in a way, right? Like it, we just, you know, we just collectively chose a couple of circums or parameters, you know, to decide whether you belong in this group or whether you don't belong in that group, you know, and the belonging is much more important, you know, like than the, the actual characteristic. I don't
1: and, know. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think it also is just an overall, um, Spiritually and, like, health-wise, it's, like, detrimental to our existence as as people to I- ignore, like, build up barriers. Like, I'm thinking about the barriers that you said were built up on the highway from the airport, like, to ignore yeah. people. It's really, like, a, yeah. it's a toxin. Um, and I think yeah. that that, uh, yeah, I mean, I think we see that in... In other famous uh, writings as well, um, Ralph Ellison's uh, *Invisible Man*, and other ways that yeah. not looking, not acknowledging, not um, uh, not refusing to relate, um, or, or or seeking out people because of where they live or where they're from or how they look. Like, it's just um, – it's overall very uh, just – what's the word? Awful for humanity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's yeah. – I mean, I, I, I feel I that way. Like, when you're talking about, like, these mountains in Rio, like, I am just thinking of pictures I've seen where it's like there's, there's natural – ways to block because of the because of the mountains you know it's like you can't see everything at once because the mountains stick out um but then there's also the way that that's used to hide and to push out um and and that's that's like un unnatural
0: yes for sure (laughs) Yeah, I think one of the things as well, like I, again, we're watching another video of her uh, giving a lecture in Boston, um, of, of Rankine, Claudia Rankine giving a lecture in Boston. I heard her say something like this idea that, um, you know, paraphrasing what she said, which is paraphrasing someone else, but like <laughs> the idea that this is also de- <laughs> this is also detrimental to what you know, like it, it's. It, I remember the phrase is something like it's also killing you. But, you know, however, more slowly, the idea that this is not just a matter of, you know, it is a matter of morals. It's wrong to do it. Right. Um, But at the same time, it's not just because we want to be nice. It's because this is unsustainable. This is irrational. This is, you know, it's not only awful and 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 inhumane it's also unsustainable and irrational and will you know lead to the to the to the fall of us all as a as as a as a species right like when you contribute into um racist ideas or when you are not careful enough to reconsider justice and reconsider you know the historical uh, wrongdoings by our ancestors. You're 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 you're, you're fating us to uh, a a culture of complacency, a culture of 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 laziness, in the sense of you know not trying to to figure out how to make things better right like if you just stick to the to the comfort zone you're never going to evolve um in the favelas here it's you know a classic example here i'm not saying it's a quid pro quo but you know or anything like that but i'm saying like rio has enormous problems with violence and violence comes first and foremost because of poverty right and so you have this this amazing city that is super you know uh, natural beauty you know beautiful people the beach is right here but you know there is a lot of of murder there's a lot of muggings there's a lot of violence there's a lot of crime and a lot of this you know is comes from poverty and comes from corruption and stuff like that so like if you are prepared, prepared perpetuating i feel like people are shooting themselves in the foot constantly by perpetuating these divisions perpetuating denying you know people of 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 humane solutions and suffering the consequences of this separation this segregation because um you know you can't just hide people away you can't just hide the problems away i feel like this this is, this is the idea that we have in America with racism and here as well with racism, but also with social justice and poverty. Like the first instinct is to hide it away, is to is to make it disappear. It's uncomfortable. I don't want to look at it. I don't want to talk about it. And, you know, it always festers. It always gets worse. You know, so. um uh, if, if if I'm learning anything, is that you know it's including in my personal life, is that you know the, the the most direct way to solve a problem is by addressing it and by looking at it and by having uncomfortable conversations and by and by standing your ground when you think you're right and not necessarily um, always acquiescing to this to this need to make people. Um, Protect themselves from the truth, right? Which is the injustice and of racism and the and the dangers of racism.
1: Yeah, I think that um, I'm thinking of when there was the the Charlottesville sort of white supremacy rally uh, that happened, um, I guess almost three years ago, and that there was. Um, as that was playing out and you know on the day of and and that woman uh was run over and you know there's all this yes. like sort of tension and and little bits of violence here and there within that rally and i just remember all these senators and like public figures uh, many of them tweeting out oh, there's no place for racism in our country. Like, I condemn the <laughs> yeah. the, the people who are, like, marching uh, in the, the name of white supremacy. And it's just super counterproductive. So it's great to say, yeah, there's no place for racism in this country. Like, that's a good idea. That's not reality. Like, there is a place for it because we've allowed for there to be a place for it for hundreds of years. So... It's it's again, it's this idea of just being like, oh, let's not like there's nothing to see over there. (laughs) Let's not look at this, because if we look at it, then we're going to have to do something about it. And that's that's sort of this this I mean, that's a very kind of um, simplified way of discussing it. But it's just this idea that. We need to look at it. We need to admit that there's space for racism here because there, there is, it exists. And if we don't admit that it exists and we don't acknowledge it, it's like saying, I don't see color. I mean, it's completely, it does not allow for any action to be taken in order to dismantle the system that has been.
0: Absolutely. Yes. I a hundred percent agree. And, um, it's, it's about, it's about, um, facing the issue, but also not forgetting, right? Like, I feel like one of the things that um, she address uh, Claudia Rankin addresses in the book is um, this idea that you know even when you do when you are confronted with something as uh, a diff- difficult as far as racism goes, um, the, the sort of automatic response a lot of the times is just to forget. You know, like, so you confronted with it like a couple of years in, in a couple of years, you pretend it never happened, kind of thing. I think she uses that example, talking about the history of Serena Williams and Grand Slams. Um, and this idea that, like, people did people just forget that she has a whole history of being called out and being booed and being like this and that. Like, right. So I think it's really, I think it's really important to to understand that you know it's 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 not it's a it's a truth that hurts but also is a problem that needs fixing and it takes a while. Um and it's gonna make people uncomfortable because it's very hard to tell someone that their whole life something that they thought about was wrong or something that they never thought about was a huge problem. So I, I understand the resistance from people who don't want to think about it or who don't want to deal with it because we did live in a society for a long time that, I mean, when I was a child, I would say that like, we weren't talking about racism as much as we do now. And uh, um, I find that it's hard to go back, you know, and imagine someone who, who was an adult then um, and and say listen all of this these things that you thought were okay were never okay you know <laughs> it's not sure. it's not easy to it's not easy to like sort of retcon someone's life like that you know like and I understand the resistance but it's 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 also a matter of honesty right to be able and and, and self and uh, uh, you know understanding to be able to to yeah, to see that the world, sometimes when someone tells you the world is different than what you think, that person is right, you know, and so I feel like a lot of people are just sticking their fingers in their ears and going, la, 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 you know, like, I don't want to deal with it because my life is a good night right now and I'm comfortable and to think of myself as part of the problem is very difficult um it, you know that one of the things that i find interesting as well is the idea of whiteness and how a lot of white people in america don't even think of themselves as white like they don't you know reflect about their own whiteness and being white in america is such a defining characteristic of your person like it's one of the most important parts of your of your life you know like if you're white but you get this idea that you're just normal and sure. someone else is different. And, you know, and being white is so is so important to white people. And at the same time, they they, they have afforded this, this privilege of just not thinking about it.
1: Yeah, it's, you're not reminded that you're um, white when you're walking down the street or running an errand or whatever you're doing, because that's not how the system of white supremacy plays out. Um, yes yeah. it's, it's people who aren't white that that are rem- reminded of of their own of the color of their skin um yes
0: but it, yeah the, but if anything would have changed I mean, like if you were white and you it, there was a way to change that you know in the middle of your in the middle of your um life you would certainly notice you know like you would certainly it, it would certainly become very important so I find it's it's very important to think about that as a as a as a defining it's a defining identity in America, right? And people just don't not remember that.
1: Definitely, um, it's it's such a valuable point because it makes you again these small things that maybe you're not even interacting with people and you're still not noticing how racism works. If that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. Because you're not yeah. you're not having to acknowledge. Your privilege in not having to acknowledge your race. I mean, there's so many layers to this and how it works on a day to day basis, even if you're not opening your mouth or taking any action or doing anything that could be perceived as offensive. Just the idea that you don't have to think about being white. And when I say you, I mean me and other white people <laughs> that um, we don't I have to necessarily think about being white, because, like you said, that's not how yeah. our race has been um, sort yeah. of understood since we were born.
0: For sure, yeah. I think I can I can relate. I know, obviously, I can't relate because I am of privilege as well. I have plenty of privileges. I'm a man. I'm cisgender. I live in a nice part of town, you know, like I got, I got to, you know, do a bunch of things that many other people can't do, like travel to school, you know, and, um, I feel like this is the, the, the point is, is, you know, obviously, obviously racism is a very, uh, you know, the institutional racism is a very complicated matter, but I think like there are parallels in, 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 sexism and in, and classism and in things like that, that, you know, it's important to understand like i have to i have to understand that as a man i have privileges that women don't and and i feel like you know i can relate that with um privileges that other people might have that i don't so you know it's it's i think this is a this is a thing that everybody has to basically um you know and in one level or another everybody should Look at check your own privilege and and look at your own sort of place in the world and how do I relate to other people and everything.
1: I know I was just thinking the other day when I was taking a walk in my neighborhood and uh, of course since the the quarantine has begun when um, people are crossing the street all the time to avoid being close to other people, you know, or staying six yeah. feet away, and I just realized the other day that. That's something that I kind of would do anyways. If it were, if I saw a man walking towards me, or if I, a man was behind me, I would cross yeah. the street anyways. Um, especially when I'm taking, yeah. I'm you know, I'm taking a lot of walks. So sometimes I'm going in the morning, a lot of times <laughs> I'm going in the evening, you know, around dusk. And I certainly would mm-hmm. cross the street if a man was behind me or walking towards me um, at dusk. So it's yeah. just interesting to think about the way that, I mean, I'm not. I'm not comparing that adjustment to my yeah, privilege, yeah, of course. I, mean, yeah. I just, I think it's a. There are different. Like I, I am very aware of the fact that I'm a woman, even if I'm not. Yeah. I'm not aware of the fact that I'm a white woman. Yeah. Um,
0: I, I think I, I, there's this thing like you just like you, you there is there is transferable knowledge like there's there's transferable skills like you know from one issue to the other there are transferable. Um, and, and there are, like, the Rx and people who will say, really, really it's all the same thing. But, you know, like, in, in disguised in different ways. But um, it's it's possible to translate, you know, like, knowledge and best practices from, you know, one to the other.
1: Yeah. And <laughs> I think it's really... We should go and discuss the thing that caused us to want to talk about Citizen from the beginning, which was tennis and you watching tennis. And in this book, um, Rankin uses sort of the many stories um, and about Serena Williams and and the what she's had to deal with as a as a black woman in a traditionally white space of professional tennis. And maybe like tennis more in, in general is is considered to be a white space, but she's using it in the sense of of professional tennis and the racism the sexism that that Serena has dealt with from um fans from umpires is what I think they're called. I I'm not really familiar yes, with tennis umpires. um from her <laughs> From her um, <laughs> opponents, um, from yes. sort of like, you know, just larger institutions um, and yes. and certain locations being a more toxic environment for her to play in than others based on how the fans treat her there. Um, and the times yeah. that, you know, she has been reprimanded or lost points, lost games for behavior that... A man doing the same thing, you know. Some he did the same thing, and he wouldn't, he wouldn't suffer the same consequences. Um, yeah. And and so she, Rankin uses this as a, as an ongoing part of her work. She sort of brings the story, you know, Serena Williams into the book early on, and then she she ends the book with a reference to tennis as well. And um, yeah, I mean, since I'm not. I don't watch a lot of tennis. I don't seek it out. I mean, I think it's an interesting sort of... I, I wish I knew more about it, and I'd like to read more about it because I want to have it in my kind of vocabulary around sports and how different sports sure. exist. But since you you were at the U.S. Open in 2018, right? That's yes, correct? I yes, I was, yes. And um, this is when Serena Williams was playing Naomi Osaka, and there was this issue that that the the umpire kept um i mean she was talking to him and he kept taking points away from her for like <laughs> essentially sassing him i don't know like saying things yeah. that he didn't like but of course since then we've seen all these like videos of of men doing male tennis players doing similar things and not losing points um and you know she broke her tennis racket because she was frustrated, and there she lost one of the matches. I believe. Um, I'm not sure yeah. if it's games or matches. How that? How those? The two games. Yeah, were she lost t- one of the games. Yeah. And so
0: basically, it's like, yeah, please, um, please
1: you take so over. Be-
0: <laughs> <laughs> so basically, what happened is that uh, I. Uh, by the way, I wasn't at this game. I I went to the I went to that tournament. I I watched Nadal and. Um, Kashinov play and um, I also watched many other um, that was like kind of like the the most high profile match that I got to watch. And I watched many other um, uh, um, matches on that day. Serena Williams did play that day if I'm not mistaken, but I didn't have the ticket for that because they did separate between day and night. And I was there on the day ticket and the night ticket was more expensive. So it was, I, I, with the ticket that I had, I couldn't see Serena. Um, So what happened on the final of the women's tennis is that um, Serena was first, um, obviously it was a very big deal for her. It was the first um, major, she was playing after her child was was born. So it was, you know, right. it was kind yes, of yes, yes. branded already like as a huge comeback, you know, in this idea that like women can have children and still win and and all of that. So like there was a lot of rhetoric about it, even in adverts and stuff like that. Um, and obviously she was very uh, she really wanted to win that title. Um and then what happened was um there is Uh, a violation in tennis that's called coaching you're not allowed to communicate with your coach so the the coach sits in the box and it's very close to the player you're allowed to like express emotion and say like yeah and look at him and then the guy like you know will clap or like you know fist pump or something that's fine but the coach is not allowed to give you advice while you are on the pitch and Serena's coach uh, did do that, so he signals something to her, right? And I, it's unclear. I mean, now she he said he didn't do it. She said, like I don't know, like it's unclear whether or not she saw it. But there is like footage of him, just, like you know, doing something with here with his hands or whatever. And
1: the umpire. The issue saw here is that like, even if she and the umpire it, side, it. Yeah. yes,
0: yes. So. I don't know. I mean, again, I. Pardon me for my like not missing the fact, but I don't know if she saw it or not. I don't know what if there is consensus about. it. I think
1: it. she says she uh, didn't um, see it.
0: She says she didn't.
1: Yeah. So.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um. I, I think. I think that's what it is. And. Uh, uh, basically, she was. She was. She took it very personally because she was being accused of being a cheater, right? Because that's cheating. She said she didn't see it. The guy didn't buy it, and gave her a warning. So, so it's it goes at something like one warning, two warnings, and then you miss a, a uh, you miss a point, then you miss a game, then you miss a set, then you miss the match. Right. So like if you keep doing consecutive infractions, your your um, your punishment grows like pretty fast, right? So I think there's two warnings or one warning and then you start missing the point, goal or whatever. And uh, breaking a racket is also an infraction. So no one can do that. Um, You you can express um, uh, frustration in other ways, but when you break a racket, depending on the, 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 the... the the tournament if i'm not mistaken you're not supposed to do that like if you like say names for example if that's an infraction so there's a lot of codes and little things the problem is that it, this is not always enforced so the coaching right. in the first place i mean some people would some people would argue that like this happens all the time it's kind of this unspoken rule that you just leave it alone you know and if you're kind of anal about that you're sort of over umpiring like you're you're just over you know you're just being too anal about it nitpicky about it and so there have been you know they and i'm sure they did like a uh they they there there have been infractions about it in the past um but uh, you know people thought it was very unusual that people you know the guy would would give uh serena an infraction for that. I mean, she was very upset because he he she feel she felt like he was um basically, you know, sort of messing with her like many of the other umpires that have messed with her in the past, right?
1: Yeah, she called him that a she thief, was um for
0: Yeah, exactly. It's such an
1: also an interesting sort of interaction because really like in the grand scheme of things, like Thief is not up there on like the most offensive, awful thing you yes. can call someone. But within this context of like tennis, where there's a proper way to be, and even though that's not an improper thing to say, and she was sort of communicating her frustration in a way that was not outlandish considering the situation, she was still punished for calling him a thief.
0: Exactly. Like, and then everything just escalated because she was frustrated already. He kept sort of being, sort of watching her and every little thing she did. And, you know, there were faults here, faults there. And then, you know, she, I think she, I believe she ended up losing a set to Noemi Osaka at some point. Um, And one of the things was exactly that, like she called him a thief, um, and he took offense to that and he did not handle the situation very well. And I feel like there is, there is. I mean, for me, there is a, a thing with tennis. Like tennis does have this very um, uh, strong stress on proper attitude, on like this elegance. You know, like it's, it's supposed to be a gentleman's sport. It's supposed to be very... Um, you know, or the demeanor, you know, it, a certain demeanor is expected. A certain social standing is expected. And, uh, you know, as as we see in the book with Claudia Rankine, this idea of like, you know, I, there is a, a, a phrase here that uh, says, you know, I never feel as black or as colored as when I am against a, 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 a sharp, uh, white background in, yeah, you know, the, and the fact that Serena... Zora
1: Neale Hurston quote.
0: Thank you very much. And I feel like Serena's Serena's presence and dominance in the game is very much a question, right? It's very much a thing that um, makes people uncomfortable because it, that's not... In a way, it's kind of like not supposed to happen. That's my interpretation of the ratio, the, the ratio issues about uh, Serena. I feel like Serena Williams in a way, you know, like, according to the white, you know, superiority racial myth that we all live in, um, she's not supposed to be the best player in America, right? She not She's not supposed to be a national hero. Because in that sport, specifically, like, you're expecting a blonde woman to be great you know like and expecting that woman to be fragile and skinny and 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 demure and elegant you know like and Serena Williams by the way is incredible at playing the game and and being part of the sport and she is very well spoken and she is very um, she 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 speaks this the 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 sports lingo and she behaves very much like what you expect a tennis player to behave, but at the same time being able to like imprint her own mark on the sport. So I mean she's a force of nature, but um, I find that a lot of people still feel this you know like the, the, this very sort of deep kind of. Um, feeling or suspicion that you know really really she shouldn't be there you know at one once i was i once i was in a, another i mean i've i've been very fortunate uh, over the years because i've been able to go to these these events but once i was in wimbledon which is in the uk and um she was supposed to play, but again, I couldn't I didn't have the tickets to see her play. But uh someone in front of me, some old older British lady, just turned around and we were talking about Serena and stuff, and she just turned around and said, like, oh yeah, they're talking about the sisters, like they're quite Amazonian, aren't they? And I I just felt like a, a burst of rage <laughs> because like what kind of <laughs> what kind of comment? What what is that supposed to mean? Like what kind of comment are you like are you? You know, it sort of really tells me that, you know, people are, some people are very bothered by this, like by, by her presence there, by her body, by her, the way that she is, you know, and at the same time, she is unquestionably good. And I find that this is such, uh, in the history of a lot of sports, this is such a common story, right? Because... Um, A lot of sports depend on people just being good at something, right? Excelling physically, right? And um, and at the end of the day, it's numbers, right? It's not judging, right? And so when someone who is Black happens to be excellent at a sport, there is no racism that can deny that point. You know, you, you can't deny that the ball went into the hoop. You can't deny that this was an ace, you know? Because the ball, it, it, it's, it's a very objective fact. You know, You know, like a lot of the, a lot of sports sort of are based on this objective fact. And so I find that this is like, sports in America have been a way to carry uh, black people into permanence because of this. Because if there was a judge in the 1920s or something that could choose between a white and a black guy to, to, to say who was better, We know that the white guy would have been better, but since, you know, like there is no subjectivity, right. Quote unquote, like, you know, and at least I, in a first instance, at least, you know, the ball in the net or the ball in the hoop or the ball in the court is the thing that decides who was better. um, Then it's a much more fair game, but I find that Serena, yeah. Serena had to carry a lot of that. Anger and a lot of that frustration, and the Claudia Rankine book really is very good at capturing that um, and understanding that this isn't the first time. You know, like in the fact that she had to, like after all this pressure for her to represent to women, represent, represent mothers, represent America, represent Black people um, in in sport, um, she felt like she was che- being cheated of that because. A guy just didn't like her. He could very well not have called that fault, you know.
1: Yeah, and, I mean, it definitely uh, seemed uh, like he he had some anger towards her that he was showing through these this the small amount of power that he has. He was like using uh, throughout the whole uh, match game, yeah, whatever. I think, I think
0: the, yeah, I think the thing is like treating people the way that you treat people. Um, and not consider like how can you is it possible to consider her behavior devoided of its history like do you can you really put an umpire to 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 be the line judge of Serena Williams understanding the importance of the history so like I find that a lot of the a lot of the pressure on Serena Williams there was for her to behave as if, the racism doesn't exist,
1: yeah. As if yes, the history yes, yes. wasn't
0: there. You know, like I feel like a lot of people were angry at her because she slipped, because she let this 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 mask of "I'm fine, I'm I'm a pleas you know I'm a pleasant woman," <laughs> you know, like I'm I'm whatever I'm that means, whatever being a pleasant yeah, woman. exactly. Means. You know, like. <laughs> That the idea that it's like it's for from from black people very often it's so expected that people are like you're not blaming me right like that's was what, kind of the 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 way I sort of see people like thinking like you're not it's not my fault like you're not blaming me like you're 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 good like you're cool right we're we're cool and she is she's basically saying no we're not cool right she's screaming she is she is very angry we're not cool this isn't cool. And a lot of people just felt this resentment towards her and this frustration towards her because she wouldn't just pretend that it was fine. You know, like no one wants to remember and I'm sure she doesn't want to remember either. So I I don't know, like, you know, should should she have been in control of her emotions? Like, should she as a public figure have been... um, uh, Being able to concentrate in the game and 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 just like move forward and forget about it and like even if she thought it was uh, it was unfair, be able to like you know put on a show for people to watch. I don't know, <laughs> you know, uh, is she an entertainer or is she an athlete? I don't know. Like, she's
1: a person. She, I mean, she's the, she's both of those yeah, things, but I, she's also yeah. she. There's space for her to be. I mean, there should be space for her to be. Just herself and just someone who's an under an incredible amount of pressure to win and who has a strong desire to win. Um, exactly. And then has I, these feel reactions. Like, I feel like
0: most of all people were very frustrated and, and upset about her display of emotion and not being able to understand that this display of emotion comes from years of going through the same shit. <laughs>
1: Right. I mean, I'm just thinking that um, Citizen was published in 2014, uh, four years before the 2018 U.S. Open when this incident with uh, Serena Williams and this umpire Naomi Osaka uh, happened. So Claudia Rankin had already found all these other, I mean, had already put together all these other instances as evidence of what serena williams has had to deal with in 2014 and then we're yeah. on to 2018 and we're seeing her have to deal with it again after having a child after dealing with um she had some sort of embolism during labor i think and then after she gave birth i mean she was in like she was almost died or, or was not doing yeah. well so she to come back from that and be able to play tennis at the highest level and to, have to it feel as though things are being taken from you, stolen from you, yeah. and then when you have a reaction to that, you're the villain. It's really distressing. Um, yeah, yeah, and I, I think like, that. Oh, sorry. Go like, ahead. She is,
0: no, it's, I mean, I, I think that the 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 thing for me is her mental, as as people say it in in tennis, quite a lot. Her own mental game is very good. Like she is a person of incredible, incredible endurance and incredible emotional endurance, you know. Like, and you know, in order to get to the point that she got, and and you know, like, I feel like people don't give her that credit. I feel like her body being there um, really um, is—it's—it's it's a body issue uh, a lot. I, I feel like her body, the way that her body is, um, it looks like really. Bothers a lot of people, and I feel like when she plays into, she constantly has to play it against the stereotype of being a savage, you know, like a a person who doesn't know how to behave in an elegant setting, you know, and people kind of expect from her to be like overly careful about her emotions and her dress and the way that she presents herself. But at the same time, there's so many people over the years who will say, make fun of her body or say that she can and can't, you know, can't and can't wear a dress. And I think she navigates it pretty well in the sense of like, she wears some very unique outfits to court in the sense of like, almost like, almost saying like, I'm not going to pretend I am a different person. I find like, I, I, I think, Claudia Rankine really sort of alludes that to um, uh, alludes to that, and somewhat some part of her book. Um, but I agree with her if that's what she's saying, in the sense that Serena Williams will be when Serena Williams retires and she is no longer within those spaces, she will be lauded as a hero. She would be like an absolute American treasure. You know, people won't have any issues, I find. I mean, I suspect. I'm not sure, obviously. But um, people will have very little problem looking backwards into Serena (laughs) and, like, making her a hero. You know, in the same way that, like, people will look back at, like, Martin Luther King right now and say, oh, Dr. King is so inspiring. But, (laughs) you know, like, he's saying, like, wait, wait, wait. Like, he's talking a lot about a lot of stuff that is still a problem yeah, he's a right? hero
1: but let's not enact <laughs> any of his plans, ideas uh, philosophies <laughs> exactly. in order exactly. to actually Such achieve inspiring more quality. words
0: you know like and exactly so I feel like Serena Williams might reach the status of being like an absolute American hero and she will have like stadium named after her and she will have you know whatever but right now when her body is there in the pitch, when it's present, it's it's still very hard for a lot of people to deal with, you know, with her refusal to pretend that she is not what she is, you know? Like and it's because I think this
1: is sorry.
0: No, yeah, that's 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 it. I, Once you she retires,
1: like she's no longer a threat. Just like Martin Luther King isn't a threat anymore because he's not alive. Like I think yeah. that it's so easy to Sort of tell the story of someone, lift someone's ideas up, um, call them a hero after they're gone in whatever sense the word gone means. And that's a huge problem that we have as a, I don't know, as a country that keeps us moving forward in any substantial way is because we we are so threatened by each other, the progress, the accomplishments, the success of of. Groups that have historically been sort of uh, pushed down. um, Yeah. That that it it's too little, too late, and it's empty, absolutely empty. Like the naming the streets after Martin Luther King, like that's great, (laughs) but what about like. Looking at what he wrote yeah. and maybe turning it into policy—I don't know. Like, it's just there's there's yeah, a lot yeah, of empty I mean, gestures it. that come. Whatever Confederate <laughs> asshole you find to like name this square after, name this uh, street, whatever. It's like, of course, I prefer that people who I actually think are American heroes like get get some credit there. But when you're not actually doing anything else, it's 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 meaningless.
0: Yeah, to a certain exactly. Extent. It's, it's empty gestures, and it things it like that. Yeah, exactly. And I feel like it's just more, way more easier because we, we all, like, have the version of the hero that we want to have in our hearts and stuff, and I feel like Serena Williams is going to be lauded as this, you know, like, pioneer, this, like, great for women and great for, you know, like, amazing for Black people, but then, like, there you were in 2001, like, you know, yelling racist stuff at her from the from the bleachers, you know, so or letting her know that you're not satisfied with how her body looks like. You know, like uh um it's it's very it's very tricky because um she carries that, you know, and we all carry that. And um um it's a matter of identity. Like I find it amazing that a white I've talked to some people who are into tennis and who have a really hard time um Identifying with that. Like she is one of the most dominant figures in that sport from America. But if you talk to well you know, I'm not generalizing here, obviously, but I've have talked to white males who just can't feel it, you know, <laughs> when she plays, they can't be like, she's playing for my country, she's from my country, she is representing my they don't feel this identification, they don't feel this um this uh this, this, this feeling of, of, of pride, you know, like of, of having your country represented, not only represented, but like absolutely crushing, you know, like in, 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 in history, history history-wise like absolutely crushing every other country. Like her career is really, really, really good um, in the sport. And I find that, you know, it's still hard for some people to, to to just relate to that you know like if if she said it actually a couple of times like she if she was a white male she would be a freaking american hero you know she would just be so much more than she is today
1: but not so much um, more she would just be seen as so much more she would just be celebrated exactly so much like exactly she is yeah. as much as she should be or needs to be. It's just that we don't. Oh, of course, have, we don't have, like, the capacity. That's what I meant. Yes, yes, of course. No, no, no. I know that's what you meant. I just yeah. like we don't have the we we have the capability to recognize her as such, but we don't. We choose not to. Um, yeah, really exactly. To and I feel like
0: it's a, it's a very emotional thing. It is. So yes, carry on.
1: I just want to read this quote from the section of the book where um, Rankin is discussing. Serena Williams and and what she's been up against and how she's moved forward. Sure. And the body has memory. The physical carriage hauls more than its weight. The body is the threshold across which each objectionable call passes into consciousness. All the unintimidated, unblinking, and unflappable resilience does not erase the moments lived through, even as we are eternally stupid or everlastingly optimistic. So ready to be inside among a part of the games. Yeah, and I think that that just says it all. I mean, she's talking about Serena Williams, but she's not just talking about Serena Williams. And yeah. I think that's you know the and and really like focusing in on the idea of the body that you're you were talking about this so much like that she's. She's judged for being in this space because it's her body that's not expected to be in this space, and yeah. Um, yeah, that she carries that with her. That's that's a part of who she is. That's inside her. All of that judgment. All of that um, people purposefully misunderstanding her um, and misseeing yeah. her. Um, yeah.
0: And being bothered by who she is, right? Like it's it's a matter of presence, right? Like I've never I've never seen like I've, I feel like a lot of people obviously have many positive, you know, like the way that I'm talking about it. This sounds like she is hated by everybody. That's obviously not true. I mean, she is well loved and. You know, I've, I've seen her, I've heard her play, like, inside the stadium when I was outside the stadium. People go crazy. She has a lot of love. She has a lot of support, obviously. Sure. You know, and she is an American hero, right? Even when, um, and when Naomi people...
1: Osaka won, like, there was so much booing because people are upset about how... Serena had been treated, and she had to, like, say, stop (laughs) booing, like, let Naomi enjoy this. I'm not sure if it's Naomi or Naomi, but she was, was like...
0: It was a bit of a train wreck. Yeah, I know, that was just such an
1: emotional thing, and just, like, they were hugging and crying, and... um, Yeah. And and it, it just, again, goes to this really hard reality that I think that even when Serena's so angry and frustrated she still bears the burden of making things right like it wasn't the umpire out there that was comforting uh naomi osaka it was serena who had to not only be the person who had the game like taken from her to a certain extent and um you know on top of all the other things that she's experienced within that space but she also had the responsibility of like making things right so yeah the burden that we place on on people to to make us feel more comfortable and again i'm talking about like the white space and white privilege and oh i this i didn't mean to do that it was wrong or or you know she wasn't saying that but just the idea that she is the one that then is like cleaning up yeah after what was a it just it continues on like the burden continues
0: yeah. And I feel like this is the, exactly, that. that's exactly what it is. And I feel like this is, again, this, this idea that she brings in the book has a lot, which is this responsibility that you have as a minority or as a person of color to like maintain the system in a way, right? Like, so, so, because if you, if you rebel, if you appear not to be, um, what people expect of you, you, you suffer consequences. I mean, as a person of color myself, I, have certainly, uh, experienced that before in the sense of like, you know, understanding what is expected of me, understanding that I need to be, if I want to navigate certain spaces that I'm not supposed to be in, I need to be better. Like I can't miss out on, I don't know, like turning in an assignment or something, you know, like if I'm in school, because that, that place into all kinds of other, you know, assumptions like that has consequences that go beyond my myself as a person. And I find that uh, Serena Williams uh, is an example of everybody. When, um, yeah, also like when I'm when I'm when I'm talking, you know, not only about being black, but also like when you're a person of a different, you know, like uh, a sexuality other than 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 straight. Like many times in a social situation, you have to. Uh, sort of pretend or evaluate whether or not you say something and it really feels like some some of the times it really feels like you're protecting someone right like you're protecting someone from knowing the truth and I mean obviously the difference here is that you know I can people don't know about my sexuality unless I tell them and people always know about my race but like I think that there's something to learn here because when you're talking about being gay in a social setting, like a lot of the times I don't say it. And I want to, in, in, in the feeling that I have is to like protect that person, like to like not go there because they don't understand because they don't, because they would be uncomfortable because they wouldn't know how to react because they blah, 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 blah. And so like my instinct is to not say anything or, you know, I don't do that anymore. But when I was younger, I'll certainly lie about having girlfriends and stuff like that and that's something you can't do when you're black right so sure. you can't pretend you're not black but that, sometimes I feel there is a lot of uh expectation from you to pretend you're cool like pretend you're you know you're black but you're cool you're black but you, it, you don't you're you black but I can say the n-word around you like you're black but I can like you're black but there is no problem right like we're not we're I'm, I'm okay right and I feel like that's what Serena Williams constantly doesn't do, which is play into this, uh, play into this stereotype, you know, like this expected um, uh, place of the, the the nice black person. And uh, as a consequence, a lot of times she's she she's just branded with the stereotype of the angry black woman, you know, uh, because because even that is not afforded. Uh, an individuality you know like it's
1: yes it's more like it's look true. at it's her like behaving like all the other ones yeah again it's the they it's the other ones it's so easy yeah. to understand a group of people if you don't have to actually think about everyone being different from each other
0: exactly yeah and i feel like this is the main thing right That this is one of the main things is like the the, the the taking of the stripping away of someone's individuality, like the idea that, you know, it's really hard for us to, to grow up thinking that the world is vast and there's millions and billions and, uh, you know, trillions of people uh, living in it. And each person is a complex, you know, fascinating world in, in and among themselves. And, um, i think racism is sort of like a way in a way kind of attempts to downplay that and say like no that person that's suffering from abuse or neglect or or injustice that's not a real person that's not a full person right and and um and i feel like that's you know in a way psychologically as a, as a story we tell ourselves in order to like go to bed you know easier like you know racism in, in a way is a way to like as a lie that we tell ourselves to cope you know with the fact that the world is in fact incredibly unjust
1: yeah I I I, yes um, one of the last things I want to mention um, is that Something I said in the beginning and this speaks to the burden. Um, but something I said in the beginning was about Claudia the the book, Citizen, kind of um I don't think she was trying to provide any information to me so that I can be less racist or notice more other things. I think that right. she was writing it for like again it goes to this like burden, like what's what is her job? Her job is to make work that she thinks is is an offering in some way that is like compelling in some way or or something worth sharing. And she says she did it for herself. So I want to make it clear that when I was talking earlier about like what I took away from it, it's because I think that by her listing off all these things that she notices, I in turn need to then be like, what do I notice? Um, Rather than her saying, hey, this is what you should do to be a better person and, like, not play into the system that we have. I think she's just saying, like, here's all these things that I've experienced and I've noticed and that people around me that I love and interact with have had to deal with. And then I, as an individual, am saying, like, what are what are what am I noticing? What am I seeing? And I think that that's a real power in this book is that it 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 holds you responsible in some way. It feels you feel kind of this idea of what do I do with what she's done?
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's not a manual, but it's, 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 it's there. um, So you you can extrapolate on your own experiences and, and faults and, and yeah, life.
1: Glauco, thanks so much for making time to discuss this really important piece of work. I know that I'm spending a lot of time reading books that I hadn't read before and some and rereading some including citizen and it's just been good to you know look again
0: oh absolutely i am my, my absolute pleasure um it's a great book thanks for recommending it to me and um anytime
1: yeah i hope we might watch a tennis match in person together someday <laughs> Right yeah, now, it feels pretty far fetched, but yeah, I hope it's I hope it's once again possible. Um,
0: yeah, yeah, hopefully. Yeah, Same.
1: and I miss you, and I love you, and please say hi to Louis.
0: Sure, miss yeah. you and love you too. All right, we'll, um, we'll talk soon. Stay safe. Bye-bye. Bye bye.
1: Bye.